Beach. Now, how many of you have visited Hawaii? Show of hands, anyone here? Wow, you all, I'm, I'm jealous here. Now, how many of you who visited Hawaii have snorkeled in Hawaii? A couple, okay. Well, on Friday, there was a Yahoo article that came out titled, Couple Sues Hawaii Snorkeling Company for $5 million, alleging, alleging that it abandoned them in the ocean on their honeymoon. That would be a bummer, right? It happened in September of 2021. There was a, couple, a California couple who was in Maui, of all places, very nice, and they were on their honeymoon. They booked a snorkeling excursion with a group called Sail Maui, and the snorkeling boat headed over to the little island of Lanai. And over there, the captain told them when they got to the one little spot, the captain told them that they had one hour to snorkel around, and then they would go off to another location at that point. So the couple went off, and they encountered some rough waters while they were out there. And so I don't know if the captain left early or what happened, but the, the couple claims that they, the, the waters were so rough that they couldn't get back to the boat when he let them know that he was leaving. And sure enough, they're struggling to get over there, and the poor, the, the poor couple watches the boat go off into the sunset or whatever direction it was going there. It left them in the ocean while snorkeling. So they say they barely survived as they swam to shore in, uh, on, on, through the rough seas of Lanai. Now, finally, they got to shore. They found someone with a cell phone, and they called for help. And hour, this is hours after the boat left them, they finally got a hold of Sail Maui, and Sail Maui didn't even realize that they had left the couple behind. So there they are, suing them. I don't know what will happen, but it will be interesting to see. Now, I don't know about you, but that does not sound like a good honeymoon, does it? Not a good start to the marriage, right? Because when you're in the middle of the ocean with rough seas around You want, even need someone there to help you. You need a boat there to bring you up out of the water and to keep you afloat. And we've been going through this very small book, small letter of Philemon, and it's only, as I said last week, one chapter, 25 verses. And last week we looked at the, we really got an overview of the characters that were involved in the situation. Paul, the Apostle Paul, who wrote a lot of the other books of the New Testament, he is writing to a guy named Philemon. And he's writing about a runaway slave, slave named Onesimus. And Onesimus had stolen something from Philemon, who was his master, and then he eventually ran away. He stole and ran away, and then he somehow encountered Paul. This is Onesimus, ran into Paul and put his faith in Jesus Christ. And so now he has, he has a changed, heart, changed life, and he's starting to, starting to want to make amends for what's happened, for what he did by stealing. And so after a while, he decides with Paul that he's going to return back to his master, who happens to be Philemon as a good friend of Paul. And so Philemon has been wrong because Onesimus has stolen from him. He's run away. But Onesimus is also going back at the risk of his own life. And Paul now is in the middle of this situation, closely attached to both people who he's been involved in the conversion and, and both people putting their faith in Jesus Christ. And he's asking Philemon 
to treat Onesimus not as a slave, but as a brother in Christ. Now, would we all agree that this conflict has the potential to cause big issues between these three Christians? Not even, uh, even more, it has the potential to cause issues with the church that's meeting at Philemon's house. So we have some hot topic issues, a potential big deal that's going on. Last winter, I, I was with my kids in the forest, and uh, we were playing with fire. Sort of makes me sound like a bad parent when I say it like that, but uh, that's what we were doing. We were playing with fire, and we had these boxes from Christmas, all these Amazon boxes, and we had them pile high, and uh, we wanted to burn them. And so I took some gasoline, and I poured it on the boxes. Uh, but I've learned from previous mistakes that, that you don't just light a, pi- light a pile of boxes with gasoline on it. And my arm hair has learned also from that as well. So uh, this day I, I made this little, this little fuse. I, I had these uh, wrapped up packing paper, the, the brown stuff, and I made a fuse about uh, five feet back. And then I lit that, and then I put, poured that with gasoline. And me and the kids stood back, and we lit it. And then at first it was nothing, but then within a second it went, and it just, everything lit up on fire, poof. And, and my kids and I just stood there and we were just amazed at the fire there. We're, we're, we're from right outside of Washington, D.C., where even anything related to fire is illegal. And so now we're here in, in, in New Hampshire and we're watching that fire and we're like, wow, that's pretty cool. But listen, my pile of gasoline-soaked boxes there is an excellent example of the situation that Paul was in when he was writing to Philemon there. And as we're going to see, as we work our way through these verses, we can, we're going to see that he deals with it very well. And so we're going to see what we can do as we see what he does. We're going to try to learn from his example. But really the secret is that he doesn't deal with it in his own power. He doesn't try to get into things with his own efforts there. Paul knows that snorkeling in Lanai is not something you want to do on your own. Paul knows that the only way that you will make it through a tough situation is to keep the boat near, so to speak. So would we all agree that no matter how devout we are, all of us are going to be in conflicts from time to time. We're going to have issues with our spouse, with our coworker, with our friends. And I was thinking, today, uh, we are only 611 days away from the presidential election. Now, do people have opinions about who should be elected? Disagreements are going to arise. Here in this church, leaders make decisions every month that not everyone agrees with. That is, that's not going to please everyone. We're never going to have 100% support. And so, Christian friends, we're going to have differences. Families, we're going to have arguments. Coworkers, we're not always going to see eye to eye. So what do we do when these kinds of things take place? What do we do? And so we saw last week that in verses 1 to 3, that, that the first principle that we can take from this passage is to know who you and others are in Christ. So how we see people impacts how we treat them. 
But when we truly understand who we are in Christ and who others are in Christ, we will see them differently. But today, we're going to be looking at verses 4 through 7, and we're going to look at the second principle. And so, how do we deal with conflict with other and other issues with Christians? And so here is principle number two. We need to look upward and outward. So upward and outward. So let me go ahead and, and read the passage now, verses 4 through 7. Paul writes, I thank my God always when I remember you in my prayers, because I hear of your love and of the faith that you have toward the, of the Lord Jesus Christ and for all the saints. And I pray that the sharing of your faith may become effective for the full knowledge of every good thing that is in us for the sake of Christ. For I have derived much joy and comfort from your love, my brothers, because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you. So in this passage, Paul is dealing with a situation and he looks in two different directions. And so let's look at the first direction that we see here, that Paul looks upward. Paul looks upward. In verse 4, he says, I thank God always when I remember you in my what? In my prayers. And in verse 6, he says, and I pray that. And so who are we looking to when we pray? We're looking to God. And so we're looking up to him. And, and that's why he says that he's thanking God because he's praying to God. And this is a key in every part of life and certainly important when we think of it in terms of dealing with conflict with others. Because when you go to God in prayer about a situation, what you're doing is you are saying, God, I can't handle this on my own. God, I need your help. So in other words, you're saying, God, I can't snorkel on my own without the boat nearby. I need God to help me in these situations. Now, most Christians, I think, would say that they need God's help every day. Most Christians would say that. They would certainly say that they need God's help when they, need, when they were going through difficult situations. But there's a difference, church, between saying it and living it. There's a difference between those two. So how do you live it out? And Paul shows one of the important ways in this verse here. He says he goes to God, or he, he lives it out by going to God and asking him. Going to God and talking to him about the situation. Going to him and relying on God to be involved in this situation. So while God can work, in any situation, when we need his help, he tells us to ask him. He tells us to go to him and ask him for his help. And that is exactly what Paul does. Not only during the difficult moments, but the other moments as well. International Justice Mission is an organization, a nonprofit, that seeks to end human slavery and help those that are trapped in slavery. And would you all agree that seeking to end human slavery is a big task? 
That's, that's a lot of work. There, there's not a lot of people that are involved in the organization, and they have a lot of work to do. Yet I read that in the midst of all the busyness that they have, their primary focus is on prayer. It's on prayer. Every staff member I read gathers or, or spends the first 30 minutes of their workday, this is not before their workday, of their workday in silence to pray, to meditate, or to reflect on what they've read in the Bible. That's the first 30 minutes of their workday. Then, after that, they gather at some point during the day for 30 minutes for a daily corporate prayer time. They also say that they, have, they host quarterly off-site spiritual retreats and provide employees with an annual day for a private spiritual retreat. And so the CEO, which is, uh, his name is Gary, uh, Gary Haugen, and he was asked why he does all this. They, they have a lot to do. So why is he using up an hour a day in prayer and spiritual reflection? And he said this. He said that prayerless striving leads to exhaustion. I've learned just how crucial it is to settle my soul in the presence of Jesus every morning. Even though it is tempting to hurry into our work, we intentionally still ourselves and connect with our Maker, the, the, the God who delights in restoring and encouraging His children. I like how uh, Pastor Charles Spurgeon put it. He said, We cannot all argue, but we can all pray. We cannot all be leaders, but we can all be pleaders. We cannot all be mighty in rhetoric, but we can all be prevalent in prayer. I would sooner see you eloquent with God than with man. So church, I want to encourage every one of you, in every moment of life, but in particular when you're going through conflict, look upward. Look upward to God and ask Him for help. Not only, though, does he look upward, but he also looks outward. So that's our second thing that we're going to be looking at. Paul looks outward. And you may ask, well, what does it mean when I say that Paul will, looks outward? And so let me read verses 4 and 5 again. Paul says, I thank my God always when I remember you in my prayers, because I hear of your love and of the faith that you have toward the Lord Jesus and for all his saints. And so Paul took time to thank God for the other people that were involved that he's writing to. And so he's praying for them. Not only that, he's celebrating in prayer what God has done in Philemon's life. So he's celebrating and thanking God that, that God is working in there and, and growing his faith. But then let's look at verse 6. He says, And I pray that the sharing of your faith may become effective for the full knowledge of every good thing that is in us for the sake of Christ. And so the commentaries for this particular verse will say that in the original language in Greek, it's actually a little bit confusing to put together. But most commentators believe that he's not necessarily saying that he's praying that he will, that he will share his faith. So that is important. But what he's doing is that he's praying that, that the faith may become effective in his life. In other words, that he will continue to grow spiritually. So he's praying for Philemon to grow in his faith. 
So let's put these two things together now. So he's praying and thanking God for Philemon and for the others involved. And he's also praying that God will do even more in his life. Let's think about what this means. Let's think about what it means to look outward. Paul is not only looking to God for help. He's also asking God to work in the lives of the ones that he needs help with. He's not just saying, God, help me in this situation. He's saying, God, bless the others involved in this situation. Now imagine, let's just imagine for a moment what our relationships might look like if we took that approach. Imagine what our spouse interactions would be in the midst of arguments if we took that approach. Imagine how things might be different as we, if we took that approach, that we prayed for them and asked God for help. I came across a, a story that I, I think fits well right here, uh, and it's about a famous New Testament scholar from a while back, and his name is uh, A.T. Robertson. And during one of his classes, Robertson was known for being uh, very, uh, a little bit harsh and, and direct. And, and so during one of his classes, Robertson deeply offended this Tennessee mountain man in class. And so Robertson, he was uh, sometimes brutal and rigorous with his students. And so after class, Robertson goes to his office and the mountain man from Tennessee follows him. And the mountain man, by the way, is as big as a mountain, I read. He was a big guy. And he went into Robertson's office and he told this great New Testament scholar that he was going to whip him because Robertson embarrassed him in class. Robertson said he understood. And uh, he just had one request before the whipping commenced. He said, would it be okay if we prayed first? And so the student agreed. And they both got on their knees, and Robertson began to pray. And pray. And pray. And they believe that it went on for almost an hour. An hour of prayer. And eventually, the anger of the student subsided, and Robertson apologized for what he had done, and he agreed to not embarrass him anymore, and he spared himself a whipping. Listen, Prayer makes a difference. And maybe it's not even in the life, in the, in the person that you're praying for, but it makes a difference in your life as well. So let's go ahead and let's talk about this now. What can we apply? What can we apply what Paul, or how can we apply what Paul is saying to our own situations that we're going through in our life? In Oswald Chambers, he said this, He said, we tend to use prayer as a last resort, but God wants it to be our first line of defense. When we pray, there's nothing else that we can do, but God wants us to pray before we do anything at all. Most of us would prefer, however, to spend time doing something that will get us immediate results. We don't want to wait for God to resolve matters in his good time because His idea of good time is seldom in sync with ours. But prayer, prayer is vital in every situation that we're going through. 
In particular, as I keep saying, in particular when we're going through conflict and difficulties with others, even other believers. And so what I want to encourage us all to do is to make prayer a priority when you have disagreements and conflicts with others. Make prayer a priority. And so this week, when you encounter a difficult situation, instead of fighting back, instead of getting defensive, instead of posting an opinionated comment about their post, or even telling the other person what you believe, I want to challenge you, first of all, that we should turn to God and ask Him to be involved in our situations. Ask Him for help. Ask Him to work in your place. Ask Him for wisdom. That gets you, when you do that, that gets you into the safety of the boat, as we've been talking about. But second, I also encourage you to turn to God and ask Him to work in the other person as well. To ask Him to work in a very in a number of different ways. And I want to give you four ways that you can pray for the other person uh, right out of our passage. First of all, you can thank God for that other person. You can thank God for that other person. And, and, and maybe you're saying, I don't have anything to thank God for about that person. Well, well, think hard. Think hard. Think of something. Surely there's something the other person has done that you can thank God for. I'm sure you can find something if you think hard enough. But second, thank God for what he is doing in them. And listen, as messed up as the other person, if, if they've already put their faith in Jesus Christ and are following him, even if, you, in your opinion, they're doing it poorly, they have turned from darkness into light, and you can thank God for that. Third, pray for God to, uh, that, that God would bless them, that they would continue to grow, that they would grow even more than where they're at right now. And then fourth, pray that God would lead them into even more godliness and faith. These are things that that Paul has mentioned that that we can pray for others about as well. And if you will make that your first reaction instead of the other things that I've mentioned, I wonder how things might be different in your interactions with them and in your conflict with them. So I want to close with a story uh, that I read this week about uh, the really just shows the importance of prayer. It's about a guy named John Dixon. He's a, a Christian and an author, and he's from Australia. And he writes about how he came to Christ, not from some big event or some well-known person, but he, when he put his faith in Christ, it was because of the ordinary works of this middle-aged woman named Glenda. And he talks about how a while back, when uh, in public schools in Australia, they used to offer a Bible class in the public schools, and the teachers would be all volunteers from a nearby church. And so Glenda was one of the teachers that was involved in the school that he was in. And so after the class was going on for a while, Glenda started inviting everyone to her house to just have food, have a lunch, and then just have conversations about Jesus. And so this continued on for a while, and, and they became closer to Glenda, and, and they built a, build a, build a relationship with her. So one night, a bunch of the boys from the class were out drinking, and one of the boys just got super drunk, just got, was heavily intoxicated, and the boys knew 
that they could not take that boy back to the house, to, to his house, because the father, who's a military man, he would be furious. They didn't want to just bring him there. And so they, they thought, well, maybe we'll leave him there, leave him on the streets. But they, they, they said they can't do that either. They can't leave their friend on the streets. And so they then thought of Glinda. And it was about midnight when they walked up to Glinda's house and they knocked. And she answered and she was dressed up nicely. And apparently she was hosting a fancy dinner party. But when she saw what was going on, she didn't bat an eye. She brought the boys in, passed all the nicely dressed guests, and took them into the back of the house. And she told the other boys, she said, throw them in the shower, clean them up, and just put them to bed. We'll deal with him in the morning. So that's what they did. The next morning, the boys went back to the house. And they went to pick up the boy. And they saw now that he was sitting at Glinda's table. And he was just eating bacon and eggs with her. She was cooking. They were chatting away. And listen, they knew that she didn't approve of drinking. She didn't drink alcohol at all. And they, they knew that, but she still showed them love. And that left an impression on them. And so fast forward a couple of months later, and five of the boys in that group ended up putting their faith in Jesus Christ. Five of them. And so now John is one of them. And many years later, John's now grown up, and he's in ministry. And he said uh, he wanted to find out what happens. Let me read you what he writes here. He says, years later, I was starting my own ministry and trying to explore new modes of reaching people. So my first thought was, I'll, go, I'll talk to Glenda, and I'll ask her what her secret was. And since uh, several of us had become Christians through her influence, I figured she must have had some strategy. So I went there to her, fully expecting her to tell me about some program she had implemented or some particular way that she had had of sharing the gospel. But when I asked her, she said, without batting an eye, she said, prayer. And I was really disappointed, but she continued. She said, but by the end of the year, there you were. Oh, did I skip something here? I'll have to look here. Um, oh, it's good? Okay. You know what? I think I, I, think I actually skipped the verse, uh, a part of it there. Uh, she basically said there, that the, the part that I left out. Unless it's right here. Nope, not there. Okay. <laughs> You'll just have to believe me. It's really in there. Um, she said that the group of, of volunteers in the school there, uh, they decided that this particular year they wanted God to work. And they decided that they would spend the year in prayer for their work in the public school. And so she said, by the end of the year, there you all were confessing Jesus. And so John says, for an activist like me, that was a poignant lesson. In the end, the harvest is God's, it's not mine. It's not my creativity. It's not my skill, it's God's. We just have to bring our ministry to God and cry out to him to give us success. And listen, what if we took the same approach in difficult situations in our life? When we encounter conflict in church, when we disagree with something that's going to happen at the next election there, 
When we don't agree with something that happens with our friends or with our spouse, or our spouse upsets us, whatever it is, how might things be different if we turn to God instead of anger? If we turn to God instead of our own ingenuity? If we turn to God instead of just frustration and despair? If we turn to God instead of anything else that we can do in our own power? And if we submit our lives to God through prayer, things will be different. Maybe not exactly in the way that we like it. But when we pray and when we submit our lives to God, we are in the center of his will. We are in the boat instead of on our own in the ocean. And listen, in that spot, there is no better place to be. I want to tell one more thing to those who don't know Jesus. If you've never put your faith in him, I want to encourage you, turn to him. And that is the first step to being in the center of his will. So the Bible says that if you will confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, that you will be saved. And it is as simple and complex as that. But I want to encourage you today as we go into communion in a moment and sing after that, turn to him and give him your life. And so by-